Amen. Thank you again, worship team. Got a little new technology up here, so bear with me. I uh, lost my paper, and now I'm uh, all electronical, so I'm sure there's going to be something that happens. <laughs> if you would turn with me, uh, we're going to go to Galatians 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Galatians 2, we're going to start in verse 1. And uh, before we get started, I just wanted to share with you, um, as Christians, we should be coming together when God does something in our lives, right? And we should be telling other people about that. We should be uh, sharing what God is doing in our lives. So Friday uh, was my last day as a landscaper. I shut down the landscaping company. And this week, I'll be in the office full-time now. So <laughs> I'm happy, too. I'm happy, too. Uh, yeah, what I wanted to share with you, though, was that landscaping company um, was such a blessing from God. Uh, in, in November of 2019, my wife and I, Allison, we were, we were talking about just a small way to make just a little bit of extra money because during the summertime, everybody disappears out of Brentwood and there's not a lot of people doing art, so we needed just a little bit of money, right? And we started that company not knowing that in 2020, that the art bus would just get completely shut down, completely. And that little landscaping company that we started back in November, God took that and carried us through COVID for almost two and a half, almost three years with that little bitty landscaping company that he grew and he made profitable. It was a bittersweet moment on Friday. I did the last lawn and I walked away and, and I was just struck by how much God cares for us and how much he's doing when we don't even know he's doing it. We had no idea in 2019 what was coming. No idea. But God took it and he prepared it and here we are today. So I wanted to share that with you. It's good to share those things with each other. Let's get back to our passage here. We're going to go to Galatians 2. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 10. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 2, verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was brief, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even, even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain, remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me Barnabas, me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to learn. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that you would teach us, Lord, that hearts would be changed and, and softened, and that um, we would impact this community, Lord, for you. 
I'm sure most of you have probably heard the joke, where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Nobody knows? Wherever he wants. That's right. An 800-pound gorilla sits wherever he wants. Uh, today we want to get a little more figurative than that, and we want to, to ask, how do we deal with an 800-pound gorilla in the room? And I'm not speaking of a literal gorilla, but the idiom an 800-pound gorilla in the room. Now, don't get this confused with an elephant in the room. That's a completely different thing, right? When you say there's an elephant in the room, nobody, nobody really wants to talk about it, nobody really sees it, right? An 800-pound gorilla in the room means something that is so powerful, it does whatever it wants without regard for rules or rights for others. That's something in today's passage is conflict within the church. The church in Paul's time, as well as our own, was and is full of people, more specifically, not fully sanctified people, meaning that conflict is inevitable. Today, however, I want to argue that within the church, conflict, when handled in a biblical manner, is not only a manageable gorilla, but can also be useful for the growth of the church. To understand this, we need to ask ourselves four questions as we're looking at this passage today. The first question is, who is the conflict with? It's vitally important that when conflict arises, we understand who to talk to, and sometimes more importantly, who not to talk to. What is the conflict is our second question. So who is the conflict with? What is the conflict? You can't repair something you don't understand. And you can't understand the conflict without talking to whomever the conflict is with. The third question, when and how do we deal with conflicts? What are the biblical principles that we need to follow to be able to discern when and how to deal with conflict. And finally, fourth, why do we deal with conflict? What are the benefits of dealing with an 800-pound gorilla? Paul, along with Barnabas and the apostles in Jerusalem, understood the danger of letting conflict run loose in the church. They knew that if they let that run loose, the grace of God would be crushed. The gospel of God would be perverted. But instead, they, they work together, they stop the conflict, and so that the right hand of fellowship was even extended and the church was strengthened. So four questions. Who's the conflict with? What is the conflict? When and how do we deal with conflicts? And why do we deal with conflicts? So let's swing right into it by looking at Galatians 2, verse 1. Then, after an inter interval of 14 years, some debate here. Some people say 14 years after the last three years that Paul mentioned. Some people say it's 14 years right after his, his uh, road uh, to Damascus conversion. Uh, the majority of scholars will agree with that viewpoint, so that's the viewpoint I think I'm, I'm most willing to take at this point. So it's 14 years after Paul uh, was turned into a Christian by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He goes up, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now Barnabas was Jewish, right? And he was first introduced, uh, he was the first one to introduce Paul to the apostles. If you remember, uh, three years uh, after Paul was converted, he went to Jerusalem and nobody would meet with him because they were terrified of him, with good reason, right? We looked at that last week. He imprisoned them, he uh, killed them, uh, he voted to kill them, right? But uh, Barnabas, 
was the one that, that took him and, and took him to the apostles and made that introduction and made that possible. And then um, he was also the one that went and found Paul uh, when the Gentile church of Antioch started to grow. So after Paul had gone uh, and met with the apostles the first time, he kind of went off and went to Tarsus. And Barnabas went down to a town called Antioch. Not that Antioch. Antioch over there, right? And he, th there was a church there that started growing. So if we flip to Acts, we're going to go to Acts 11, uh, and we're going to start at verse 19. Uh, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between Acts and uh, Galatians today, so feel free to throw a, a chunk of your bulletin in there or something. Uh, but Acts 11, starting at verse 19, we're going to go through verse 26. Now, this is Barnabas. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent off Barnabas to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he began to encourage them with all resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Barnabas also went on Paul's uh, first missionary journey uh, in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Uh, he says uh, they were in Antioch. Paul, he brought Paul down from Tarsus. They were in Antioch there. And now they were in Antioch uh, in a church was, that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manin. I'm so sorry. She has to spell all these names, and I'm just firing them off. So. <laughs> uh, a lot of names in that one. Uh, so they, uh, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to, to which I've called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Amen. So Barnabas was a pretty integral part of Paul's life already. But now he's going with Paul up to Jerusalem. And he's headed up there to, to head off these Judaizers. But he wasn't, it wasn't just Barnabas, it was also Titus. And Titus was pretty new at this point. We, we don't have a ton of information before uh, this point. But most likely he was from Antioch, from the church that uh, Barnabas and Paul were at. Paul ends up calling him his partner and fellow worker in 2 Corinthians 8, 23 and 24. And Titus would act as Paul's go-between between the Corinthians, uh, with the Corinthians between the first and second letter of Corinthians. In this section, though, the two most important things were that he was a Gentile and he was considered a brother of Christ. Now, moving on to the other players here, what did Jerusalem represent? Right, we looked at that and we said they were headed to Jerusalem. What does that mean? They're just going to the town? No, there's, there's actual people in Jerusalem that they want to talk to. So this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time in today. Acts 15. Acts 15, uh, verse 1, uh, is where we're going to go. Uh, it's interesting when you study the Bible, uh, the different books complement each other. Acts is more of a history book. So it's going to give you 
just kind of an outline, like this is what they did, this is where they went, this is how they did it. Galatians is more of an autobiography, right? This is what I did, this is what I did, uh, this is what he did, this is what we did, right? So we can pair those up a little bit in some certain instances. And in this case, we're going to look at the historical Acts 15 and look at the autobiographical um, Galatians. So Acts 15, uh, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. So we see, when they say going to Jerusalem, they're not saying go up to the town, right? Go talk to the town. They're saying, no, go to Jerusalem where that initial church was formed, right? And look at the beginning of Acts. Look at the uh, when the, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and thousands were saved every day and they just kept adding to their number. That's the original church in Jerusalem. That's the, the epicenter of the Jewish church. Right? And that's where they were going to go to. The, the, so the, we find out later that the apostles spoken about are Peter, John, and Jesus' half-brother James. <laughs> so there's some players, right? We've got Barnabas, we've got Titus, we've got Paul, we've got the, the apostles in, in Jerusalem and the church there. But who are the men from verse 1? Some men came down from Judea. Those are the Judaizers we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Right? Those are the ones that came down and they attacked Paul on two different fronts. They said, first, Paul is not an apostle. Right? He, he didn't walk with Jesus. He, he wasn't with Jesus. Right? He doesn't have the authority. We came from Jerusalem. And we're telling you, you need to be circumcised. And this is where they would get into their attack on the gospel. They attack Paul, then they attack the gospel. Right? And they say, it's great that you love Jesus. He's great. I love Jesus too. But we need to add circumcision. We need to add the law of Moses into that, and that's how you truly are a Christian. And that's what Paul spent the first chapter arguing against. And now he's going to go face them face-to-face -face in Jerusalem. There's our players. That's the who. Paul, Barnabas, Titus. Paul, Barnabas, Titus, the Jerusalem apostles and elders and the Judaizers. This is the who of our conflict. And in a beautiful example of the first step of conflict resolution, we see Paul's group going to Jerusalem to hash things out. Look at Acts 15.3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So, from Antioch to Jerusalem was about 250 miles. Now, 250 miles to us, that doesn't sound like much. But back then, there weren't very many people complaining about gas prices because they walked everywhere, right? They may, maybe they complained about sandal prices. I don't know. We've always got something to complain about, right? So they would walk, and it would take them three to four weeks to get there. If you want a kind of a picture of what that would be like now, if you walked out that front door there, and you just took off and walked all the way to Bakersfield, that would be about the same distance as Antioch to Jerusalem. It wasn't a small trip. It would have taken them about three to four weeks. And they didn't have Expedia.com or Airbnb. So they had to find different ways to uh, travel and have refreshment and, and places to stay and whatnot. So what they were doing was they were going through all the different churches as they went. And they would stop at each individual church. And they would see how they were doing, see how the gospel was progressing, see how the believers were growing. 
And it's at this point that, that I wanted to point out how easy would it have been for Paul to slip in a sideways comment about people in Jerusalem, right? Because that's, that's what the Judaizers said they were from. They said they were from Jerusalem. Wouldn't it have been easy for Paul to be like, you know, those Jerusalem knuckleheads, they, they keep sending these Judaizers down and it keeps messing with our church. It keeps messing things up. Or how about Barnabas? Maybe Barnabas could have... Uh, he could have slipped in the uh, the only approved message, message of uh, or the only approved method of gossiping in church, right? The prayer request. I think we need to pray for the church in Jerusalem. Those guys, let me tell you what they did. They sent these Judaizers down, right? They could have very easily done that all the way to Jerusalem, and they could have sown little seeds of dissent all the way to Jerusalem that would have sprouted into conflict in each one of those churches and conflict with the church of Jerusalem. But they didn't. So we can learn from this. If we have any conflict with anyone in the church, our responsibility is to go to that person. Do not pass go. Do not tell 200. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won a brother. Okay, we've identified the who. We know the who of the conflict. What is the what? Let's look at the what. Take a look back at Galatians 2, uh, starting verse 2 there. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Pause. Paul, on the road to Damascus, had an encounter with Jesus Christ. right? And then he went out and he was trained in the desert of Arabia there afterwards. He went one-on-one -on -one with Christ. Do you really think that Paul was scared that what he was preaching was not the gospel? Not at all. Not at all. When he says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain, what he was fearful of was his gospel that he had preached, the true gospel, the gospel that he knew these Judaizers were going to come in and they were going to wreck it all. They were going to destroy these budding churches. They were going to bring legalism back in and they were going to crush grace. That's what he was afraid of. That's why he was worried that he had run in vain. In verse 3, he continues, he said, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was free, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Acts 15, verses 4 and 5, give us just a little bit more insight into this meeting. In verse 4, it says, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done to them. But some of the sect of Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And there it is, the what. This is the what of our conflict. Interesting, the, the Acts 15 is actually right in the middle of Acts. And it's kind of a picture because the first part of Acts is all about Peter and the Jewish church, right? And then we get to Acts 15, and we have this showdown here, and the rest of Acts is about Paul and the Gentile church. It's even more interesting. You can, you can Google this if you want. Uh, I found it on a Blue Letter Bible. But if you look at the, the different miracles that Peter did in the beginning of Acts, and then you look at the different miracles that Paul did in the end of Acts, and they mirror. Not perfectly, but th there's several mirrors there. It's, it's, it's a time of transition. 
on one side you've got the Jews who have spent the last several thousand years worshiping at the temple, offering sacrifices, uh, doing different festivals, right? And then Jesus came and interrupted all of that. And now these Jews are trying to figure out what is what is still real and what is what how does this new covenant work? And on the other side, you've got Gentiles who've never had any of that. They, they probably mostly come from pagan rituals, right? Pagan uh, worshiping the god of, of Moloch or, or a myriad of other gods, right? And they don't even have that tradition. And and now in Acts 15, we're going to put those together. Do you think there was a chance for conflict there? Absolutely. If you, if you, if you don't, let's ask a, a very simple question. What color should we paint this building? What color should we paint the inside of this room? There will be conflict on that. And we don't even have thousands of years of, of, of tradition behind it. Right? There's always conflict. But the way that Paul treats this and the way that Paul looks at his brothers and sisters in Christ is a, is a model for us on how we should do it. It doesn't appear to be a very difficult task to identify what the conflict was back then, but sometimes the conflict isn't that obvious. Most, if not all, of the conflict that we face at Brentwood Bible Fellowship won't determine the entire uh, course of Christianity. But conflicts can determine the entire course of a church. And we need to be determined to know how to deal with those conflicts. We need to understand uh, that those conflicts do come, but if we treat them in a godly manner with love for one another, they can actually build up the church. Amen. We know the who, we know the what, but now it's time to determine uh, when and how to deal with conflicts. Look back at Galatians 2, verse 5. But we did not yet, we but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. That even an hour there sounds weird, right? Even an hour, why an hour? It, it's, it's a phrase. It literally means like not at all. Not for a second would be would be a good way of putting it in our, our benign. Not for a second, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. And again, flip back to Acts 15, uh, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. This is right after the Pharisees have stood up and said, they need to be circumcised. They need the law of Moses. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified of them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. All the people kept silent when they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul gives us a case study in how Holy Spirit-infused conflict resolution can not only remove the conflict, but it can heal the wounds of the conflict. Think about this for just a second. Paul was face-to-face -face with these men who had slandered him, both personally and professionally. Right? They said he's not really an apostle, he's making it up, he's lying. They, they trashed his gospel. 
Think of the turmoil they had caused in some of the churches that Paul poured his heart into. Think of that. And now think of being face-to-face -face with that person. Are you going to want to say good things? Are we going to want to share the love of Jesus Christ with a person that has been trying to destroy our life for the last several years? We should, and Paul does. It's not easy, but he does. Paul chooses instead to focus on Christ. He goes to the church and the apostles, and he doesn't attack. He doesn't say, look at these Judaizers. Look at these idiots. Look what they've been doing to my churches. Look what they've been doing to all my friends down there in Galatia. He doesn't do that. He goes, he doesn't attack, and he shares the gospel. He shares what God is doing in Galatia. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we could only imitate that. What would a church look like where all the people chose to not focus on themselves, but focus on Christ? That all sounds good, you might say, but how would you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I have four easy steps for you. Four easy steps, right? First, prepare your heart. If there's conflict and you need to address it, prepare your heart. Pray. Read your Bible. Look at what God has to say about the situation. Second, once you've done that, uh, determine the problem if, that, that you're trying to deal with is big enough to bring up. Is, is someone doing something that's annoying but not quite simple? Does it need to be addressed to keep the church moving forward? If you look at 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 7 through 9, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 9, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Does this conflict need to be addressed? Is it a personality issue? Is it a biblical issue? In which case, it absolutely does need to be addressed, right? Is it a personality issue that's affecting the ministry of the church? It needs to be addressed. But pray about it. Read your Bible. Determine if you should actually do it. And then once you've done that, be sure that you're ready to address it in a biblical and godly manner. Ask yourself, am I prepared to address the problem in a godly way? I told you that something would happen with this, this uh, new electronic stuff, and it happened. I bumped the, uh, the scroll screen, so I had to fix that. Sorry. Ask yourself, does it, am I prepared to address this in a godly way? Again, look at Paul's example. He was maligned. His ministry was trashed. His message was called heresy, and yet he stayed firmly with Christ. Notice I didn't say he compromised. He didn't say, well, you know, you Judaizers are nice guys, so let's keep five of the commandments. But not, not the last five I don't want. He didn't compromise. He stayed with exactly what the Bible said. He stayed firm with it. Finally, the last step. Go to the one that is responsible for the action in the love of Christ. Go in the love of Christ. Don't delay. Once you've prepared your heart, once you've determined the issue does need to be addressed, once you've determined that you are prepared to handle the issue in a godly manner, go now. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Today we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper. It's a serious thing. It's not to be taken lightly. We're going to pause before we take the bread and the cup, and we're going to examine our hearts and search out any sin we're harboring, and then we're going to take that and we're going to lay it at the foot of the cross. It's also a time to examine your heart for feelings of conflict, conflict that you might have with a brother or sister. This is a time to ask God to help you overcome those feelings, and if the offense needs to be addressed, ask God to give you the strength to do so in a godly manner. In hearing that checklist, you might be thinking to yourself, that sounds like a lot of work. Or you might be thinking, I really don't enjoy conflict. Maybe it would be better to let sleeping dogs lie. Why in the world would I want to subject myself to conflict on purpose? Let's look back to Paul for an answer. Galatians 2, starting in verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked in Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me Barnabas, me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was also eager to do. We don't have time to go back and look at the rest of Acts 15. That's your homework for this week. Go read Acts 15. Good chapter. But at the end, um, James suggests writing a letter to the Galatian churches and explaining that the Judaizers were not from Jerusalem and that they did not carry the message from the church of Jerusalem. And he not only uh, affirmed Paul's gospel, but he gave him the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship uh, is not just a handshake. It's like an endorsement, right? It's like when it, during election season when you get all the, the, you know, the politicians that get on the, the TV and they say, uh, my name is Lance and I represent this Vermont, right? That, that's an endorsement. So Peter, James, and, and John endorsed their ministry. They said this ministry is valid and this ministry is every bit as valid as the ministry that we have. Conflict handled in a godly manner. And look at how this conflict ended. We can see the joyful conclusion. The church was healed and strengthened. The gospel of grace alone was solidified in the young life of the church. And Titus would go on to work with Paul and become a, a, a pillar in the Galatian churches. I have to wonder if Paul was thinking about the meeting that, that he had there when he wrote Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That should be our goal as well. When conflict arises in our church, we need to determine who the conflict is with. We need to determine uh, what the conflict is. We need to know when and how to deal with the conflict. And we need to ensure that the true conflict is dealt with in a biblical and God-pleasing manner. Amen. We need to not be like the gorilla that sticks two bananas in his ear. What do you say to a gorilla with two bananas in his ear? Anything you want. Can't hit it. <laughs> Don't let that be you. One final thought before we join together in taking the Lord's Supper. I wonder if Paul ever got through to any of those Judaizers. I wonder if 
he got through them and they finally realized it is grace alone. It is grace alone that saves. Jesus is the only way. And if he did, I wonder what it would be like when they died and show up in heaven and they bump into Paul. That'd be a little awkward. You spent your whole life trashing this guy and then you end up in heaven because of the guy? I wonder what that would be like. Because what we need to realize is if you have placed your hope in Christ and you have made him the Lord of your life, you will be spending eternity with every other saved person, no matter how much you dislike them here on earth. When we are there bathed in the eternal light of God the Father, worshiping and reigning in heaven for literally ever, how much will your aggravation with your neighbor bother you? When we've been there surrounded by perfection, how silly will we feel about the, any little conflict that we faced here on earth that didn't have anything to do with the gospel? As we bring to a close the preaching section of our worship, our worship service, we need to begin preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for believers. And if you're here with us today and you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, praise God. You are in the right place and surrounded by Christian men and women who want to share the knowledge of love and a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I would say this today. If you're not a believer, let the cup pass. This is a, a, a meal for believers. Make this a time of reflection for what Jesus has done for you. But let the bread and the cup pass by until that wonderful day when you do make that commitment to Jesus. If you're a believer here with us today, we are about to partake in one of the two sacraments we as Christians practice. This should be a holy moment. As it says in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 26 through 27, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm going to pause here in a minute, and I would like you to I would like to take that time to just look back on your life since the last time you shared this meal. Look back and, and take a look at, at what your month has been like. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28-29, we're instructed, but a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat the bread and he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, and he does not judge the body rightly. Look back over this last month, not to beat yourself up, not to, not to make yourself feel bad for feeling bad sake, but to examine what might be in your life that is hindering your walk and to lay that at the feet of the cross so we can press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. I'm going to pause here for a moment, and then we'll pray. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, just take a moment to think about your last month. Think about your relationship with Christ. Clear it out anything that is getting in the way. Lay it at the cross. meal that symbolizes what had to happen for us to be saved. Lord, please don't ever let us take it lightly. Please don't ever let us take 
take it for granted. Lord, what you did for us while we were enemies is absolutely amazing. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would, you would convict our hearts if there's something getting in the way of a, of a, of a solid relationship with you, Christ, a holy relationship, a sanctifying relationship. We pray now as we prepare to take this meal, Lord, that you would be with us. We have the uh, communion set up there in the back, um, pretty much like we've been doing. The, the cups are there. The bread is underneath the, the juice cup there. So as the worship team starts here, you can just make your way back there, grab a cup, and then head on back to your seat.
take the bread. I'd like to ask uh, Mike to break the bread for us if you would, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, how you provided the way for us by sending us your son who went to the cross, who uh, was broken down for us, Lord, and took our place that uh, we may be forgiven. Father, we do thank you for what you've done for us. And Lord, we ask as we partake today, Lord, that we would remember all that you've done and that we'd be committed to following you. We thank you in Jesus' name. On the night of our Lord's betrayal, Judas had already left. Jesus told him, go do what you have to do. Even, even in his betrayal, Judas was in charge. So he was there with his, his disciples, his true disciples. And he said, this bread, he took it up and he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Exchange death for eternal life through you. That, uh, Father, that uh, it was your desire that uh, we not uh, experience your wrath upon our lives, but Lord, that we would receive uh, forgiveness through your Son. Lord, we, we do thank you that you shed his blood for us, that we may stand right before you. same way Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. If you're here today and you let that bread pass by or the cup pass by, but you've determined that now is the time. Now is the time that I want to make that commitment to Jesus. I want to come to that Lord's Supper and I want to recognize what Christ did for me. If that's you today, we're going to sing this last song. Come on up here. I'd love to talk to you about it. If, you, if you're uncomfortable coming up in front of everybody, I'll be in that office all week. Starting on Tuesday. <laughs> come talk to you. Give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. If you're out there and you want to do a little business with God, you want to do some praying, Feel free. Come on up. Bring that last song in. Would you happy to pray with me?